1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast. Uh, I do a one-man show called Rock and Roll Politics and quite a few people have told me do a weekly podcast, so I am. Uh, Not least because the podcast gives you a bit of space. I love them. I download so many of them. And each of them, in a way, is deeply satisfying because people have room to breathe. And I think uh, whenever I see friends at the BBC, I always say, give us more room to breathe. Things are so complicated at the moment. In fairness to them, sometimes it's very difficult because they've got so much to cover. But um, we can do what we want on these podcasts. So um, each week I'll take a topic and look at it. I'm very interested in exploring terms like the centre ground, the hard left... Uh, and kind of terms that are used so often and are so ubiquitous but used I think quite casually. Sometimes it'll just be me, sometimes I'll interview someone. I'm thrilled that Andrew Adonis is a guest on this opening podcast. We'll hear from him very shortly and in fact I'm going to reflect a bit on Brexit today but I won't always, I promise you. Brexit is historic Of. epic significance, and I think a genuinely compelling drama. It's not boring. People say, oh no, not Brexit again. I know what they mean, but it is a drama of such compelling proportions because no one knows how it's going to end, like the best thrillers. It's a box set of many episodes, but no one from Theresa May downwards knows the ending. And it could take many different forms. I'm going to talk briefly before we hear from Andrew Adonis about one element of Brexit. And I'm going to begin with this opening podcast with a counterintuitive thought that may is not behaving as a prime minister very differently from any other british prime minister since we joined europe i was thinking of this actually i was on the excellent sunday politics program on bbc one and one of the other panelists said why can't may show strong leadership like tony blair and margaret thatcher in relation to europe And I was reminded that even they, with their huge majorities and apparently well-developed and different views on Europe, often equivocated for all kinds of reasons, internal divisions being the main one. The reality is that Margaret Thatcher, while asserting with increasing vehemence her wariness and sometimes hostility to Europe, signed up to every treaty and, of course, against her own instincts, signed up in the end to Britain being part of the exchange rate mechanism. Even though she was opposed, she felt too weak to do anything but sign up when her senior cabinet ministers were telling her to do so. Tony Blair, uh, rather brilliantly from a political perspective, was both pro the single currency and against the single currency in the build-up to the 97 election and afterwards uh, for quite a long time in his premiership. It was a sort of contrivance made necessary by circumstance, by internal tensions with uh, Gordon Brown and other factors too. Every Prime Minister has been as equivocal as Theresa May. Harold Wilson was both for and against the common market at different times and had to hold a referendum to keep his party together. John Major had to offer a referendum on the euro to keep his cabinet together. There is something about Britain and Europe that reduces Prime Ministers to weak, pathetic things and torments them. Uh, as they navigate their various routes through to sometimes basic survival. Theresa May is the same. She hasn't said what she wants in terms of a trade deal with the rest of Europe. She's exploring in a rather bizarre way two options as the clock ticks. Yes, she is part of a pattern. But at the same time, the external circumstances with her are unique. And this is why I think the Brexit saga is reaching a denouement without parallel in British politics. The other Prime Ministers, as they twisted and turned weakly and pathetically, not because they personally were weak and pathetic necessarily, but because they were in weak and pathetic positions, always had options they could throw out the offer of a referendum for example as a way of binding a cabinet or an opposition together well david cameron used that technique and look where that got him they could delay and delay oh we might join the euro but perhaps not in the first wave but at some future date was a formula that John Major used to keep Ken Clark happy and to reassure his euro sceptics. Tony Blair used something similar as well actually when it became clear that Britain wasn't going to join the first wave of euro members. These tricks, these devices to keep the show on the road, the unruly show of unity aren't available to Theresa May if she has made a mistake when she did have to some extent options it was to trigger article 50 before she had cleared with her cabinet any clear route forward she needed to have had the internal battles first and reach some kind of resolution before starting the clock now she is having them As the clock ticks, there really isn't much time left. And that is what's so extraordinary about the current situation. And it's not at all clear the way through because, as I say, it's not that she's in an unusual position, but in terms of her own personal approach to Europe, she's trying to bind a divided cabinet together, a divided public, a divided country. She's got the media screaming at her especially the Eurosceptic newspapers, who are supposedly supportive. The big difference is that there is no space for her to move. That clock ticks and March of next year looms, and of course the June EU summit is of pivotal importance, and a deal is meant to be in place of this whole complex Brexit saga by October. She doesn't know the way through, and nor does anyone else at the moment. So it is extraordinary. But when people call on her to show, in inverted commas, strong leadership, I kind of smile, because that phrase strong leadership is another one which is banded around sometimes, as if leaders willingly choose weak leadership. They instead look at the space they've got on the political stage and make calculations. She is not very strategic, she has no guile, she has no language to make sense of contorted positions, but her equivocations and ambiguities are depressingly familiar. I'm going to talk to Andrew Adonis about this and many other things in a moment. Before I do, I mentioned that I do this uh, Rock and Roll Politics live show. The next one is on Monday, May the 21st at King's Place. And also at King's Place, coming up in June, is a politics festival that I'm organising with the journalist and friend of mine, Ian Birrell, at indeed King's Place. It's a weekend in June, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And we've got some fantastic... Fantastic guests for the festival. John Major speaking, Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband. From the Cabinet, we've got Liz Truss, Jeremy Hunt, we've got Rachel Sylvester from The Times, Paul Mason. The list is never-ending and compelling, and it again relates to this thing that uh, we all need space these days to try and make sense of what's going on and the Politics Festival is that space. So I hope many of you will come along to that and Rock and Roll Politics live on May the 21st. And now to the interview with Andrew Adonis. As I say, some weeks it won't be an interviewee, it'll just be me reflecting, and sometimes we'll have guests. Anyway, I met Andrew Adonis for coffee on a great Sunday morning. He's a fascinating figure, partly because... He kind of challenges the cliché terms that are banded around in British politics, uh, inadvertently challenges, in the sense that he's described as an uber-Blairite, the centrist's hero. He's more interesting and subtler and complicated than that. And indeed, he talks in his interview how, in some policy areas, he's moved to the left in recent years, while retaining a friendship and deep loyalty to Tony Blair, who he worked for in uh, Number 10. He was also a cabinet minister under Gordon Brown. His recent campaigns have been fascinating because it shows the impact you can make through social media and other media outlets. His campaign against Vice-Chancellor's pay was incredibly powerful in changing that particular agenda he has been critical of the transport policies uh, more than critical scathing arising from Chris Grayling at the Department of Transport and you sort of know when Andrew Adonis is on the case a cabinet minister becomes a vulnerable and of course much of his focus is on his passionate crusade to stop Brexit. He's on a listening tour around the country and he reflects in this interview on what he's learnt uh, when he speaks to Brexiteers across the country and he's involved of course in all the House of Lords debates against Brexit. But I began our conversation by putting it to Andrew that um, what is really interesting About Britain and Europe is, in fact, the point I've been reflecting on in the first part of this podcast that every Prime Minister has had his or her problems managing policy towards Europe, sometimes problems that tipped over to crises of unpredictable outcome. And That must tell us something about the UK's thorny relationship with Europe, that it creates such political turbulence, who's ever in charge. Basically, since uh, Edward Heath took us in, Harold Wilson had problems managing his cabinet, Margaret Thatcher in the end fell over Europe more than anything else. Then we had John Major's torment over Maastricht. Uh, As I say, Tony Blair at points wanted us to go into the single currency. He never pulled it off for all kinds of complex, turbulent reasons. And David Cameron fell over Europe. What was it about Europe, I asked Andrew Adonis over a sunny morning cup of coffee that had generated such political turbulence for so long?
0: Well, the truth is uh, Britain's been ambiguous about Europe for a thousand years. I mean, this hasn't just started in the, in the last few years or since Nigel Farage uh, set up UKIP. Uh, we haven't been invaded as a country since 1066. That's really almost the only European country that that's true of. We don't have these borderlands that most European countries have of changing and shifting borders and populations moving and all that because we had the English Channel. And even though we've been threatened seriously twice by Napoleon and Hitler, threatened with invasion, it hasn't actually happened. And that has given us a detachment from the continent which has been often beneficial but also to some extent it's given us a complacency too because whilst it's true we're detached we're also deeply engaged with the continent and always have been too. You know the two greatest rulers of England in the last 500 years who I think I I would argue are Churchill and Elizabeth I, both of them were both great imperial figures. They both wanted a Britain which was global Britain, to use the modern language, but they're also both intensely European in their focus too. Churchill was the ancestor of the Duke of Marlborough. He knew all about the balance of power. Churchill, I rec- recount all this in my book that's coming out on Brexit uh, in, 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 in another month's time. Churchill very nearly met Hitler, and it's very telling when he nearly met him. is when he was writing his biography of the Duke of Marlborough and was visiting Blenheim and the battlefields in what's now Bavaria. The reason he doesn't meet him, interestingly, is because um, he meets Hitler's press secretary and says he's all he's against all this anti-Semitic stuff, and he can't understand why, why Hitler is going for the Jews in a serious way, because in England, we don't do that. We've got a much more liberal culture, and the interview's cancelled, and he never meets Hitler as a result of this. Yeah. So this ambivalent relationship, deeply engaged in Europe, particularly for trade, because we're a great trading nation, whilst being semi-detached, having uh, an imperial uh, mission for a good part of the last few hundred years and also not having been invaded and having the channel, that ambivalence
1: goes deep and we're seeing it fully reflected at the moment. And given that, I'm going to ask you about how you win your campaign as as you see it, but given that, if you were to win this campaign, and one way or another Britain stays in the European Union, do you not think it would trigger a relationship with the EU that will make the last few decades seem polite and harmonious because the Opponents, whether it's just in Parliament or whether it's much wider than that, will sort of seize on any tension with the European Union to say, look, you know, we we should have had our way in the referendum. And it's going to be very hard to manage that relationship if you are triumphant. Well, well, let's be clear.
0: We've got a big crisis over the next few months as to whether we stay or leave. Yeah. That's emphatically okay. true. But if we decide to stay, and I think there's every chance that we could decide to stay because we're pragmatic people. And when people see the withdrawal treaty and see that the alternative is not to trash our trade and our economy, when they see that, if we do decide to stay, the very fact that we are such a pragmatic people and we make the best of things, I think will get us through very easily. You know. Remember, most of the time we were a member of the EU, even though we weren't wildly in favour of the flag, and let alone the anthem and things like that, we were fully engaged in the EU. We did all the deals. It was Margaret Thatcher who got the hold of the single market going. Why? Because she saw it as an extension of British trade. So my own view is that if we decide to stay and we do it through a democratic process, which is the answer to those who say that it would be somehow undemocratic and waving two fingers at uh, the referendum two years ago, that's not the case because it would either be done by Parliament or through another referendum. If we do that, I think uh, that will then resolve the issue for at least a generation, as the 1975 referendum did, and we can make a great success of it. And just to make one more point about this, one thing I'm absolutely sure of If we decide to stay over the next year, there is no way that a Prime Minister over the next 30 years, whether they're Tory or Labour, is holding another referendum on Europe. And the reason we're in this mess, actually, isn't because somehow the British people, by some extra constitutional mechanism, demanded that we leave. You know, we didn't have Nigel Farage trying to storm Parliament or anything like that. The reason we're in this mess is because David Cameron, a supposedly mainstream politician, having to lead a party which has a Eurosceptic wing to it, miscalculated badly. He went for this referendum thinking that this would draw the sting of Brexit and enable him to move on from it.
1: And of course, unfortunately that's not how the story ended. You've got two books coming out on this whole issue in the summer and I know one of them, you just referred to it about Prime Ministers and Europe based on talks given in Oxford and you gave the talk on Tony Blair who of course you worked with in Number 10. And your theory on him was very interesting. I mean you think against popular orthodoxy that his fundamental mistake was not to sign up to the euro during the first term whereas many people regard not signing up to the euro as one of the wiser economic moves you you think that in a way was his error. The big mistake I think that Tony made was that what he did was
0: to press the pause button on Europe and he hoped that if he just did nothing, essentially, so we didn't uh, engage at all with the debates leading up to the euro and indeed we didn't engage in any other acts of uh, European integration except a little bit on defence, but even that unfortunately stopped with the Iraq war because basically, unfortunately, Tony stopped speaking to uh, President uh, Chirac and um, and Chancellor Schroeder. Apart from that, there was no real move. Now, as I look back on it, and of course, it's perspective that changes things. Simply pressing the pause button, which is what he did, was fine while he was Prime Minister. But as soon as David Cameron took over, and even worse, Theresa May, and lifted the pause button, what effectively happened is that we took on from where Margaret Thatcher left off, which was in her later years, she turned decisively against Europe. Why? Because she saw it as an impediment to Thatcherism. Nigel Lawson, who was her intellectual guru, really, in many ways, wrote a a very important uh, article in the Financial Times in the immediate hubristic aftermath of the 2016 referendum, where he said that uh, Brexit was, and these were his words, the opportunity to complete the Thatcher revolution. And that's how she saw it too. She thought that Thatcherism, you know, deregulation, tax cuts for the rich, dismantling the social state. Remember her, no such thing as society? Yeah. That was Margaret yeah. Thatcher's. That was her, That's what she actually believed. She saw all that as being put in danger by this new... Brussels' social democratic project. What Tony did was to press the pause button, which unfortunately Cameron and Theresa May have lifted again, would have been much better if we had expunged the legacy of Thatcher. Now, the problem with the currency was that two different things were going on. There was one argument about whether we should do it even if it was successful. Actually, Tony believed that we should do it if it was successful. He always said that. The problem was, and this is where we got stuck in a classic British mindset, was that we believed that these continentals are basically useless and they won't be able to make it work. And the reason why he didn't go in wasn't because of a fundamental objection to the single currency. On the contrary, both he and Gordon Brown said that a successful single currency, they would join, as had John Major before, Mm. What he fooled himself into thinking was that these French and Germans, they would never be able to get their act together. And even if they did, the idea that they could make a single currency work that was going to have Italy and Greece in it was just for the birds. And so right up to the moment when the notes and coins were being issued, I remember that Tony thought, this isn't really going to happen. Now, that is the fundamental mistake that Britain made in the 50s and the 60s, where in the run-up to the Treaty of Rome, Anthony Eden thought, there's no way that these continentals are going to be able to set up this common market, I mean, that's not going to happen. So there were famous negotiations at Messina in the Isle of Sicily, island of Sicily in the run-up to the Treaty of Rome where you had the Chancellor of Germany, you had the Prime Minister of France, you had the Prime Minister of Italy and we sent a Deputy Secretary from the Board of Trade who kept sending memos back saying, oh, we don't need to worry, this is all pie in the sky, there's no way it's ever going to happen. Well, four years later, the Treaty of Rome was signed and another four years
1: after that we were applying to join and I've got a feeling that history may repeat itself as part of the um, campaign, really, that you're immersed in at the moment, uh, you've generated a lot of uh, controversy with your criticisms of the BBC. And you call it the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation. And even some of those sympathetic to your arguments say, look, don't knock the BBC, you know, we're going to end up with Fox News and all the rest of it. Are you doing it because you know, as I know, that the BBC does get terrified by attacks from the right and the Eurosceptic right, and that there needs to be a counter? Or or is it done out of a belief that this BBC has really become almost inadvertently pro-Brexit It's a combination of the two parts
0: yeah. it's a combination of the two I love the idea of public service broadcasting and I used to be one of the BBC's foremost defenders the problem is that uh, they've come under assault from the right yeah they have Which compromised
1: terrifies them It's it, no and, question and
0: they're much more terrified by the right yeah. than the left particularly when the right is politically dominant yeah they also think that the right makes um, good ratings, particularly Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage has been on Question Time 32 times, including last month, um, as the ex-ex-leader of a party at 2% in the polls. So there was no justification for having him on, all, and I'm absolutely convinced the reason he was on is, is a combination of being um, wanting to conciliate the Brexiters, plus the fact he's just a good box office. But there is also a more fundamental thing going on, which goes to the heart of the current debate. When I started getting going on this, and the reason I got going on it was because of Farage's 30-second appearance on Question. I couldn't understand why it was happening, so I started complaining. I wrote to the director-general of the BBC to complain. And I got back from him an astonishing statement of policy. And the statement of policy was when he said to me that as a matter of editorial policy, the BBC now regarded the, what he called the quote-unquote the binary debate over staying or leaving as over he said. And the issue is now how we implemented Brexit. He said that in a letter to me. And I thought, aha, I now understand what's going on, which is the BBC has got this fundamentally wrong. What they think is that two years ago, Brexit became a done deal. But that isn't the case at all. What's actually happening at the moment is a massive political crisis and Britain will not vote to Brexit until Parliament either votes for Mrs May's withdrawal treaty, Or there's a referendum. And until then, the binary choice, which the BBC thinks is over, is in fact at the heart of the political debate. And if the BBC doesn't recognise that, then it's not actually performing its public duty as a public service
1: broadcaster. Do you sense that you've had any impact in terms of coverage? Uh, uh, well,
0: they still haven't invited me on to the, uh, onto Question not. Time.
1: No, and uh, I'm very keen to go on.
0: I'll also go on to Have I Got News For You? And indeed, I never knowingly turned down a request from the BBC <laughs> at the moment. And let me just say, I love the BBC local Uh, Radio, which I think is excellent. And as I go around the country on my Brexit tour visiting all the Leave areas, I always do BBC local radio. And if I can pay a tribute to Tony Hall, the current Director General of the BBC, I think he's done a brilliant job in putting more resources into local radio. And that, the local radio, I find thoroughly impartial and reporting stuff completely straight. So that's fine. It's the national BBC, it's the problem. And it's the national BBC, of course, which is coming under most assault from the government, from Nigel Farage and from the Brexiters. And I I think he's got to get the balance much, much, much more even on that.
1: When you've been out on your listening tour, I think you were in Lincolnshire recently and you've been everywhere. Have you had conversations with uh, people who voted for Brexit which have made you think again at all about your position when you you probably more than any other ardent remainer have spoken to brexiteers over the last few months because you've been on this tour. have there been moments where you thought wow that that's interesting i hadn't quite clocked the degree to which they feel about x y and z or 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 have you converted them in your view well
0: my thinking all the way through this has been that i understand why people voted for brexit what's called Left Behind Britain which has done very badly of the last 10 years its real wages have been going down it's very isolated you know you said I was in Lincoln it takes three hours to get from London to Lincoln because it's so isolated it's only 150 miles That's We a have train to, you which of course is how people who don't have cars have to get yeah. there yeah. and uh, it involves changing at Newark and you have to literally walk across the town and this is what people in Lincoln getting to London have to do all the time so you yeah. can understand why they feel so isolated so my view all along which is that there's a big problem that we've got with Left Behind Britain. It's had a very bad deal. And what we need is big reform, what I call a new at-the-settlement. We need big further reform and improvement in the welfare state. We need a new deal in terms of jobs. We need big investment in infrastructure and transport in these areas. But what we shouldn't do is to Brexit, because far from being an answer to Left Behind Britain, it will will make it tougher. So that basic argument, I think, holds. And I'm very struck when I talk to uh, leave voters in most of the places I'm visiting, that not many of them are against Europe per se, and indeed not many of them start off by talking about Europe. What they start off by talking about is how badly their communities have been served by the last 10 or 15 years and why no one's taking any notice. However, there is one thing I have changed my mind on. We simply cannot duck the question of immigration because the one issue that comes up everywhere that I go in places that voted leave and you cannot get a conversation going with a group of leave voters in these in these areas for more than 10 minutes without it coming up is what they see as the country being swamped and unrestricted immigration and they link that directly to the EU now the truth is it's more complicated than that as you and I know that the majority of immigration comes from outside outside the the EU EU. actually it's not inside the EU and uh, and there's a lot we could have done to restrict numbers if we want to do within the rules and all of that. However, having said all of that, what I do not think that we can do as politicians is to say to the public that we have no control at all because there is this thing called the single market and free movement, which means it's taken out of our hands. And the argument which I'm now refining in my mind as a result of my leave tour is that one of the reasons why we need to stay is so that we can negotiate a much better deal when it comes to migration in the EU, but it does need to be a new deal. We do need something like emergency break which david cameron sought to get and which he failed to negotiate and my own view and this is ironic looking back on it is that the problem we had and the reason why we lost the referendum is that david cameron was no margaret thatcher if margaret thatcher had gone to chancellor merkel and said she desperately needed the emergency break as a matter of supreme national interest do you know i reckon she would have got that emergency break
1: do you think the uk could get it Now, I saw shots of you going to Brussels to meet Barnier and others. Do you get a sense that an emergency break would be on offer now because from what you suggest is if you got your referendum you would need to have to offer something Mm. like that to win it. Uh,
0: Yes I think we can but I don't think it will be the emergency break of last term. I think what we've got to get is a new arrangement on migration within the EU as a whole which allows all EU countries because let's be clear this isn't just something that affects Britain allows all EU countries to have control over the right to work. We're not talking about the right to travel as a move across Europe. That should be absolutely sacrosanct. It's the right to work should enable governments to restrict the right to work over a certain level of uh, migration. That's clearly deeply felt across much of Europe now. They're all facing the same political pressures and social pressures as we are. And part of the reason why I don't think we could get it last time is I don't think that David Cameron negotiated strongly enough. Another reason why is that Chancellor Merkel, for whom I have great admiration, she's been a very great uh, leader of Germany and a very great, I think, leader of the EU effectively for the last 10 years. She does have a blind spot when it comes to migration for a very good reason, which is that she's East German and she sees the right to move and to work as a fundamental human freedom. Now, if you come from East Germany and you had the Berlin Wall, you can completely understand that, but the situation across the European Union is not the situation of East Germany before the, the Berlin Wall. We are not talking about communities whose fundamental civil liberties are being uh, withheld. What we're talking about is whether, on the balance of what countries can cope with in terms of their public services and just assimilation, it's possible to have unlimited right to work above a certain high level. And we're talking about a very high level. You know, since 2004, when we enlarged the European Union to the east, we've had 1.6 million Central and East Europeans who have come to live, and most of them to work here. Now, uh, as individuals, I think they're all great. You know, I'm the son of an immigrant myself. But I do think that it's, it's, it's right to say to the British people, given the concerns that they have over just the level of migration, that we need the capacity to restrict the right to work above a certain level.
1: Yeah. More widely, where where are you politically at the moment? It's, it's, it's been interesting watching your political career because I think it highlights the near uselessness of many of the labels in British politics. You're often described as the Blairite Lord Adonis, the centrist U- Lord Uber Adonis. The Uber, Uber Blairite. <laughs> and, and, and clearly you were close to him and no doubt still are. But you speak of the need for an Attlee figure in British mm-hmm. politics at the moment. Uh, your great hero, Roy Jenkins was, in many respects, a sort of... Well, he was a liberal, but a social democrat in many areas of policy. Mm. He was Mm. opposed to the Mm. Iraq war. I think his last Mm. speech Mm. was opposed to the Iraq war. His last
0: speech was actually a criticism of Tony Blair, who was his great friend. And that was before
1: the Iraq invasion as well, so he was very prescient. Of course, yeah. So given that, given the uselessness of labels that are bandied around in politics at the moment, from centrism to Blairite to whatever, uber Blairite self-describe, where do you think you are at the moment? Well, a- politically?
0: Actually, my greatest political hero is, uh, is Gladstone. In my office, I have a, a, a portrait of Gladstone and uh, at the moment it's very much on my mind because um, there's the debate about the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. Mm. And uh, there's a fascinating relationship between Karl Marx and Gladstone because Gladstone was Prime Minister reforming Britain including the introduction of democracy in the mid nineteenth, mid to late 19th century when Marx was sitting in the British Library writing Das Kapital. And it's really interesting the relationship between them. Gladstone never read any Marx. To be fair, it would have been hard for him to do so because most of Marx wasn't translated That's into perfect. English until the very end of his right, life anyway. Right. But he did know about Marx because continental governments were constantly be ask, asking for Marx to be extradited and they wanted the First International closed down. And Gladstone resolutely refused to, to do that. What he always said, indeed his foreign minister said in a response to a, a, a request that the First International be shut down, was that he thought that the best antidote to Mr. Marx's views becoming popular is that they should achieve wide publicity. So he was a great liberal. Marx was a revolutionary socialist. What is the right policy then and now is to meet the big social demands for reform in any age, to meet them openly, to be prepared to reform and to meet them in a democratic way and to engage the people. If you do that... Then you can make a success of, of, a, of a society and you don't need to go to extremes. That is my political pedigree. Gladstone's great last crusade was to give Home Rule to Ireland, mm-hmm. which he was where he was stopped by the reactionary House of Lords. If we had given Home Rule to self-government to Ireland in the 1880s, we might well have stopped a century of bloodshed. Indeed, I don't now meet many Tories who think the Home Rule wouldn't have been a good idea, even though it was the Tories who stopped Stop. it in the 1880s and 1890s. Now, Gladstone, when he formed his fourth government at the age of 82, he wrote in his diary, I have been a learner all my life. And indeed Ireland, he changed his mind on Ireland Mm. because of his experience of having to to, to deal with poverty and repression in Ireland as Prime Minister. Now, my approach to politics always is to constantly learn. And that does mean changing your mind. It doesn't mean that you give up your values or principles. My values and principles haven't changed at all. But how you apply them constantly changes. And uh, I think we've got to, as we look at this crisis we've got at the moment, we've got to be prepared to revisit. And I think when it comes to dealing with social pressures, and in particular, this big crisis that we've got in what's now called Left Behind Britain, we've got to be much bolder in social reform, much bolder than Tony was uh, when he was Prime Minister. Uh, we've got to be prepared to rethink these things fundamentally. I, for example, I don't believe that the way that companies work takes nearly enough account of their workers. I think we need a much higher minimum wage because people just are being shortchanged at the bottom. I think we've got to be prepared to invest much more in education. We've got to be much tougher on the private schools which just aren't doing their bit by uh, the state education system. You know, In the cause of seeing that we make this country work for everyone and that we don't Go to an extreme, because be clear, we have two extreme offers on uh, in British politics at the moment. We have Farage, Rees-Mogg, and the extreme right that want Thatcherism in one country, which is the reason why they want out of uh, out of Europe. And we've got an extreme left offer. That if we're going to avoid that being the future of the country, then we have got to have very bold reform and much bolder reform than we had under Tony.
1: So to lapse into using labels, do you think you have, in recent years, moved? To the left. Yes, I've definitely moved to the left on on social and economic
0: policy. But the The purposes that I want to achieve are exactly the same, which is basically a radical version of One Nation, which is a a country where there are fair shares, where everybody has a really serious stake, which is constantly more democratic. So, for example, I'm now strongly in favour of votes for 16- and 17-year-olds. I think that's the next democratic bridgehead. I now think we need to have a federal settlement for the UK. I thought that was probably pie in the sky, even five or ten years ago. I now think that the moment has come where we need to address this whole question of the government of England, and in particular the regions and cities of England which are distant from. London, which at the moment feel completely isolated. I think we need to abolish the existing House of Lords and replace it with a federal second chamber. I've become much bolder on those issues, but not because my principles have changed at all, but because I believe that in the crisis that we currently face, we just have got to be bolder to meet it. Now, Tony, in his day, let's be clear, the economy was much, much more successful then. We were having high growth rates then. You didn't need to tax the wealthy more to generate significant new income, because the tax income we were getting just from economic growth was so large. So you constantly have to change your policies to address the values which you hold dear. And, of course, it was, it was Tony who, who, who set the path for that. He, what he did when he um, became leader of the Labour Party, he said, we need to separate out, he said, ends and means. And we shouldn't become attached as a matter of doctrine to particular policies which have run their course over the previous 30 years, but the values... Solidarity, social justice, internationalism, which is a key social democratic value, which is part of the reason why we obviously shouldn't be leaving Europe, those remain absolutely fundamental to my politics. And the question is, mimicking Mr Gladstone, is... um, being a learner is how do you apply them anew in changing circumstances. Do, do you speak to him
1: sometimes still? To Tony? Well, yeah, yeah, I talk, yeah, I
0: talk to Tony a lot. Yeah. I have huge admiration for him. Yeah. And of course Tony is absolutely resolute about us staying in the European Union. He's framed some very powerful yeah, arguments i But what, and and but and what I'm trying to do is, is, is to develop a new form of radical social democracy sure. which actually meets the imperatives for 2018 not 1997. And is it your view you can do that
1: in the Labour Party. Oh, definitely. Uh, you You're know, not one of those no, even no, no. contemplating... No, you
0: uh, I've been there. You know, I was a founder got, member of the SDP in, in the 1980s. Now, we have two big parties in this country, Labour and Conservative... The Conservative Party has just had a reverse takeover by UKIP. That's a, and indeed, the local elections in May were the final stage of that. The reason why UKIP disintegrated is that all the UKIP votes went to the Tories. Why? Because the Tories are Brexiting. So why on earth would you stay UKIP now? Indeed, I have a theory which may turn out... To, I mean, it's, this is not a mad idea at all, Is that because I, I, I've been very struck by the fact that Nigel Farage has, has not been lifting a finger to protect UKIP over the last few months. Not a, not a single finger. My own view is if we do Brexit next year, I think Nigel might well join the Conservative And indeed, I think he could be, if we're not careful, the Conservative leader but one going down the line. Because after all, his policy is the policy of the Conservative Party now. Indeed, in this book I've got coming out um, in June, which you very kindly mentioned, uh, you know, on the case against Brexit, which I've done with with Will Hutton, one of our chapters in the book is entitled, How Nigel Farage Became Leader of the Conservative Party. Now, if I can let you into a pre-publication secret, Will and I had a big argument, because I wanted to call that chapter, How... Nigel Farage became Prime Minister. And he argued that we don't yet know that Farage has triumphed. We do know he's become leader of the Conservative Party because his policy of Brexit is the policy of the Conservative Party. But what Theresa May is trying to do is to square that policy with the national interest, which is why we've got this big argument going on about the customs union and the single market at the moment. Which She basically wants to stay in while calling them by different names. So his argument is that this hasn't played through yet. So at the moment, Nigel is leader of the Conservative Party in 11 months' time, he might become Prime Minister. Well, you know, that's what's happened in the Conservative Party. On the Labour side, I'm very, very keen that uh, people who are basically mainstream Social Democrats who want social reform, not social revolution, that we are the future of the Labour Party, and I'm not going anywhere. Andrew, thanks so much for giving up your
1: time this morning. Thank you. That was Andrew Adonis over a cup of coffee with me a little earlier. Again, with him, he ranges so wide, he's a historian as well as an active politician, and he was once a brilliant columnist too and so his listening tour continues he'll also be a guest at the politics festival i mentioned earlier on in this podcast one of many fantastic guests so hope to see you at king's place on monday may the 21st Uh, this is the first podcast the second will be out say if you subscribe it will come out every tuesday and i'll be reflecting on who knows where we'll be and therefore on what next week Thanks so much for listening and do subscribe.